Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. And I've entitled our Bible study, Don't Feed Your Flesh. Don't feed your flesh. And I'm sure you've heard the phrases like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or she's a chip off the old block, or like father, like son. And they're all trying to describe, when you hear a phrase like that, the similarities that often exist between a parent and their child, a father to son, a mother to daughter, a father to daughter, mother to son. And many times it's a good thing, trying to describe uh, the great qualities that have been passed on generationally in a home raised by your parents. You know, in a Christian home, in a home that we've dedicated to following God, submitted to Him, wanting to raise not just good kids, although that's great, but godly kids, kids that love the Lord. You know, in a Christian home, we want our kids to pick up our godly habits. We want them to to watch us and see our spiritual tendencies and our spiritual decisions. And, And I know I, in raising my children, this was a high priority for me, as I didn't want them to repeat all of the sinful decisions and all the pain I experienced because of the many, many bad decisions that I made apart from Christ. I wanted them to know there's a better way. I wanted them to know that they didn't have to pay. They, there was, it, it, life would still be hard, but it didn't have to take the route of sinful hard. It could be a, a, a route of trusting in the Lord. And at the same time, you know, unfortunately, our kids do pick up our bad habits, you know, uh, the things in our lives, the tendency of our fallen nature, they, they learn by example the wrong things through our lives. And it is true. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So if you're spiritual, listen, if you're spiritual, if you have a real relationship with God, then you'll find that your kids will follow that. But if you're not taking the things of Jesus Christ seriously, then your kids will follow. And so will those that are close to you. Those that look up to you, your friendships, those that you work with. You're following the Lord, it's going to be noticeable. If you choose not to follow close to it, it'll be noticeable. And I remember, you can just jot it down in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Uh, the Paul the Apostle would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're in the second section with that in mind of Genesis. We're in the second section of Genesis that deals with the families. In particular, the family of Abraham, Father Abraham. We're following along Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, and finally Joseph. And we are yet another transition. And we, since we studied through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we've had studies that have covered all 24 chapters so far. They're all available on our app. You can go to your app store and just put my name in there, Ed Taylor. The app will pop up, download it, turn on notifications. All of our studies are there, uh, available to you that we've taught here. You can go to the website as well. You can catch up and 
dive in from the very beginning. We're picking up tonight because that's where we are, but it's a transition. We come to the death now of Abraham, this man of faith, this man of failure. And then our attention will be on Isaac and God's dealings with him. And one thing we'll find out very quickly with Isaac is like father, like son. And it's lived out in that statement. Verse 1 of chapter 25 now. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abadiah, Elda, and all these were the children of Keturah. Now, some of you that are new to the Bible, you're like, why do the names matter? Let me tell you why the names matter. If your name was in the list, it would matter to you. Why? Because families are important. And yeah, the names are a little different. They're Hebrew in origin. They're, we're distanced by time and space, but not so much. People and families were important uh, 6,000, 5,000 years ago. Families are important today. So each time you face one of these hard words to read or one of these families and you're just wondering all these names, well, these names are attached to sons and daughters. They're attached to moms and dads. And families are important. This was a decision of Abraham now taking on another wife or perhaps a concubine. He marries, has more children. The list of the sons of Keturah here produced more nations. And I believe it's listed here on purpose to introduce us to another family and nation that will be very difficult for the nation of Israel. It's there in verse four, and that's the sons of Midian, the Midianites. They're going to be a great challenge as they come up later with Moses and all throughout the life of Israel. Now, it's important that we pause here. As you notice in verse five, it says, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac and Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. While he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. We have to pause here and briefly discuss this issue of polygamy because critics of the Bible or those with questions that seem to go unanswered about the Bible will use these episodes in the lives of the men that God used as some way to discredit the Bible and say, see here, look at the Christian morality and look, look, look at what you're doing in, in the church and you don't even follow your own Bible and the people don't. And all the critics come here because they say, look, here's somebody that you say God used greatly and he had many wives. And the answer to that question is, yes, God did use him very greatly. And yes, he had many wives, but something else needs to be said. And that is, he had many wives sinfully. This wasn't approved by God. It actually turns the critic, it turns the criticism back on someone's head to say, hey, look, like the Bible is divine in origin. The man, man didn't write the Bible. Because you know as well as I do that if we, if men wrote the Bible, they wouldn't include all the bad stuff. They wouldn't include how bad we were and say, look at Abraham, look how much, and look what a knucklehead he was selling out his wife. And look what a knucklehead he was having concubines and disobeying the direct command of God. And we've studied this in previous studies in Genesis, so I'm not going to develop it now. But remember, God's order and design is one man, one woman, one flesh, and one lifetime. That is the highest. Now, of course, 
because we've fallen in nature and we sin, so many have been uh, touched by divorce, that God's ideal has not been accomplished because of our sin. But even so, uh, even through failure, God can bring about something beautiful and wonderful. But God's design is not polygamy, even though culturally it was acceptable. And that is one of the challenges that you and I face here. There are many things culturally that are acceptable that many people are into, but are not acceptable to God. And you need to choose, and I need to choose, to follow the Lord no matter what's happening in the culture. It doesn't matter what's popular. It doesn't matter what everybody's doing. We have to always come back to what is God's ideal? What's the goal that God has for us? What is his desire for my life, for your life? What is his moral standard? We have really two choices when you're making moral decisions. You know that. Two choices when you're developing the direction of your life, when you are faced with crisis and what do I do next? There's only two choices. You can begin with the foundation of man's way and man's ideal, or you can begin with the foundation of God's word where he's establishes. You don't have a third option. There's no mixture. It can't be a little bit man's way. It's what does God say about the matter? And that's what I want to do. That's the direction I want. How, what does God say about raising my kids? That's what I want. What does God say about marriage? That's what I want. What does God say about premarital sex? That's what I want. What does God say about stealing? That's what I want. But you don't understand, Edward. What about everything? You know, what does God say about drugs and alcohol? Well, you know, everything's legal now. Yeah, but is that what God's desire is for you to be out of your mind all the time? For you to be high and, you know, going around not knowing what's going on and be out of your mind. No, it's not God's will for you. Yeah, but it's legal. It's culturally acceptable, but it's not God's way. God's way is very clear. Many times the Bible commands us to be sober, but also God's way is very clear. Be not drunk with wine, which is in emptiness and dissipation, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Couldn't be clearer. And ask any of us that alcohol wrecked our lives, and you, we would tell you, that's true, that's true, that's true. And I think of when the Proverbs, even in the mouth of Solomon, Solomon said, wine is a mocker. I mean, it is. It promises so much and ends up destroying your life. And if not destroying your life, destroying your brain cells one cup at a time. Things, and I don't know about you, but I need as many brain cells as I can possibly get. I, I need as much in my life to serve the Lord as possible. Polygamy is not approved by God, even though you see it many times, because there was a choice made to be culturally appropriate. And that's what they did. And it's too bad. Because even though it was culturally appropriate, it wasn't God's design. It got Abraham into trouble. It wrecked a family. Because you see that in verse 5. Uh, as you see, it, in, it says Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. He gave all that he had to Isaac, which in one sense makes sense. Isaac is the promised child. But you'll recall Isaac wasn't the first child born to Abraham. Abraham had, had other kids. He was first had, he, he first, his first son was named Ishmael. And we know that he loved Ishmael. Wasn't the promised child, but he loved his son. But yet here he gave all. I haven't marked in my Bible. I circled the word all. He gave it all to Isaac, which would create sibling rivalry and frustrations, just like we're going to see with Joseph later on toward the end of, of Genesis. 
He gives all that his father had. He's the child of promise. He's the heir of all things. And yes, it was necessary because remember in the book of Genesis, there's a bunch of pictures and types pointing uh, forward to the New Testament. So here, Isaac, the son is a type of Jesus. Abraham here is a type of the father and the son receives all that is the father's. Just like we read you note takers in John chapter 17, Colossians chapter one. But you know, it causes all kinds of difficulties among the kids. Abraham gave gifts. He gave everything to Isaac, but he gave gifts. And there's already favoritism there. It's forced upon him because of his decisions. Why? Because you got to understand this. It, It happens in the positive, but it happens in the negative too. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap everlasting life. That's the positive. But if you sow to the flesh you're going to reap corruption. The picture is used of sowing seeds. That's the picture, sowing, sowing seeds. What you sow is what's going to grow. What you're sowing out, you're going to grow. I want you to think about this. The seed that you plant today, you're not going to see it grow for some time. There's going to be time before you plant today and then you harvest later. And it's the same with anything. You're making decisions today and then you may, let's just say, let's just say, maybe perhaps this is from the Lord right now. May, let's just say some really bad decisions this morning. I mean, you knew, you knew they were bad, maybe even outright sinful. If not sinful, just compromising. You, you, you made some really bad decisions today. And around noon or one o'clock, nobody found out. You think you got away with it. And you're just going to move on with the rest of the day. Whew. Okay, all right, all right, no problem. But you know, you planted a seed that's going to give you harvest soon enough. It's not just going to go away. There's no repentance. You're just going to, oh good, I got away with it. But you didn't get away with it. Because what you sow is what you're going to, to reap. And even if you think you got away with it, or it's no big deal, or it's a new pattern in your life, where you just kind of, yeah, it's compromise. It's not that big a deal. The reality is, is it will catch up to you. And it does catch up with the family. It's something that kept going on through the generations. Continual sinful decisions. Well, notice in verse 7 now, this is the sum of Abraham's years, uh, the life that he lived, 175 years old. Just Can you imagine living to 175? And then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man full of years and gathered to his people. I'm sure at 175, he was ready to go on to the city whose builder and maker is God. I mean, he was ready. And that would make his son Isaac 75. Jacob would be 15 around this time, which tells us from Genesis chapter 12, Again, Bible study, you get to dig into different comparing passages. And from Genesis chapter 12, it tells us that Abraham had a hundred years living in the promises of God or in the promised land. A good bulk of his time was lived in the promised land. And I like this phrase. It stuck out to me when I was reading it, where it says, a good old age. Abraham was full of years. And I think sometimes... We despise getting older. We despise getting older. Our society definitely does. Not only does our society you know, minimize getting older, 
but they've made a business of trying to hide it. Because <laughs> that's all it really is. You're just, trying to, you're just trying to hide it. And they make billions of dollars hiding age. But God values age. And God values wisdom. And to live to a good old age is, is fantastic. And this is the reality. Every single one of us, no matter how old you are today, whether you're feeling it or not, I'm certainly feeling my own age, whether you feel it or not, you're all getting older. There's nothing you can do about it. You just rejoice that God has given you days to live and weeks to live and months to live. You don't know, you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know when your life is going to be held account. You're going to be called home. You don't know. That's why God, he teaches us to live every day. The Bible says, teach us to number our days. Let our days matter in the kingdom. But we're all aging to a good old age, 175, which reminded me of our own fellowship. We're a multi-generational church. That's what people that study churches would call us. We have no intentional, we have no intention to be any kind of church, but a real church that God is doing is going to be multi-generational. It's not like we have a plan, let's have a multi-generational church, but that's what we have. From a baby that, you know, I think I dedicated a year, a year and a half this Sunday to uh, those that are in their 80s, maybe even their 90s. You know, you got a, a baby that's up here crying and screaming and yelling and can hear every little noise. And then we got an 80-year-old messing with their hearing aid, you know, turning it down for worship and turning it up for the preacher. Or there was a guy uh, back in the day when we were meeting in the school that I always see him messing, because we were so close, you could see everybody so close in the school, and I would always see him mess with his hearing aids, and I'd go up to him and I'd go, hey, I bet you're turning it up for the worship and turning it down for the preacher, aren't you? And we always have a, a nice little chuckle with them. But that's the generation from babies, you know, we've got pregnant ladies to people right on the edge of eternity, and God intended it to be that. And those of you that are older, even though you live in a society that says there's no need for you, that we don't want you, let's just put you away and forget about you, not so in the church. And I'll tell you right now, not so in this church. You are valuable and important and desired to use your gifts and talents in this church. And all the younger people, they need you. They need your wisdom. They need your understanding. They need you in their life so they can serve you and learn what it's like to serve self-sacrificially. We need every generation, but especially, especially those of you that would say, well, I'm pretty close, pastor, to the good old age. Well, we're glad you've lived so many years. Now serve the Lord with joy and gladness. Or like our own pastor Bob would say that God spoke to him that in the latter years, he would be more fruitful than all of the earlier years of his life. And you're wanted and needed in this church. I think of so many times how the Bible speaks. First Timothy chapter 5, you want to jot it down. Titus, I want you to turn over to Titus chapter 2. That's going to be all the way in to the end of the New Testament. And just see the Bible speaks of age. And, and our culture doesn't have the same Middle Eastern culture that kept families together. And families served each other and didn't give up on each other. Even especially when they were the most vulnerable. But our culture just has lost it. Why? Because they've turned their back on the Lord. And in Titus, in chapter 2, you know, you, you see that <clears throat> in verse 1, speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men, here's the direction for you older men, you be sober and stay reverent and temperate, sound in faith, in love and in patience. 
And you older women, and that's the word of the Bible, not Ed, that you older ladies, you be reverent in behavior, the Bible says. Don't be slanderers or given to much wine or teachers and and be teachers of good things. Admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste and homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Remind them and teach them you're needed in the church. So, so important. Abraham is old as God intended. He breathed his last. Notice verse nine back in Genesis now. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael were buried him in a cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. And there Abraham was buried and Sarah, his wife, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Beir Lahai Roy. So Abraham is buried alongside of his Sarah, his wife, the cave he bought, remember, earlier for about 400 shekels. And here again, I want you to notice this. This is especially important for those of you that have estranged families or family members that are separate from you and you need reconciliation. Many times, reconciliation occurs or begins after a traumatic event in the family where people are forced to come back together. It doesn't have to be, but that's what we see here. Isaac and Ishmael are together again. And why are they together again? Because their dad died. And there's something about that softness that comes in families, not always, but many times, that reconciliation can take place. Reconciliation is the heart of God. It's his desire. And reconciliation is accomplished one way and one way alone. All the problems that exist between husbands and wives, between brothers and sisters, bosses and employees, you know, employees and employees, neighbors and friends, all the separation in families, reconciliation happens one way. Somebody's got to die. Not physically, but spiritually. A dying to yourself. A dying to your rights. And what you've established and the argument that you've made and how you've justified. That's the pathway. Reconciliation involves forgiveness. It involves repentance, right? Reconciliation comes when the offending party repents. It's not going to happen without that. You don't control that. You can't make it happen. But what you can do is you can forgive the person that hurt you. You can release them from the debt that they've put upon you, the ongoing sin that's come against you that could very well be the catalyst of the separation and then maybe you responded incorrectly and now, now this farther and farther and farther away. But when God brings you to a place where you learn to die to yourself and you extend true forgiveness, why would you forgive? Well, the Bible says that we forgive because of all that we've been forgiven. He who loves much, who is forgiven much, loves much. And it really comes from a work of the Holy Spirit. But reconciliation isn't going to happen. Keep fighting. Reconciliation isn't going to happen to keep arguing. Keep proving your point. You just got to take it to the Lord and ask him to work in the situation. 
And it could happen. You can be looking for those situations where God uses a situation to bring you back together. So I ask you, who will humble themselves to give the situation over to God? Uh, on either side of me, uh, to my left and to my right, there are baskets up here. After every service, we invite you up if you need prayer or an encouragement. Uh, the Bible study ministered to you or something went through. The pastors are usually up here. Uh, men and women on our prayer team, we pray with you and encourage you. And on either side, we have a basket filled with information. In that basket is a packet entitled Forgiveness and Reconciliation. It is small, but very thorough. And I invite you, whether it's tonight or any other time, if this is an issue in your life, no matter how bad it is, no matter whose fault it is, none of that, any of those, you can bring whatever the situation is, I encourage you to pick up the packet and take it. It's free. It's always free. It will always be free. If you're listening on the radio right now or watching this online, you can email me, ed at edtaylor.org, and I can email you the PDF. I can send it to you by email. Every single person that emails me, I'll send you a whole list of resources on this topic. But you guys that are in front of me right now, you can get one before you leave. I think... Uh, we did not get them filled, so there's not up there. You're going to all have to email me. Um, it's unfortunate because I asked for it to be filled, so uh, you'll have to email me, and I will send you the PDF. Uh, you can print it out on your own printer, and uh, maybe they're not standing up. They could be not standing up, but if you don't see them, email me, and I'll send it to you along with a, a, a packet that uh, a lot of different information on this topic, including... Um, including, no, they're not there. Thanks for checking. So this is very, very important that the Holy Spirit would use you to step into forgiveness, to walk in forgiveness, and to learn to walk in humility. Come back to the text now. Let's pick up in verse 12. It says, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, uh, Nebajoth, and Kadar, and Abdiel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, Kedemah, perfect biblical names for your kids. These are the sons of Ishmael. These are the names by their towns, their settlements, 12 princes, according to their nations. These were the years of their life of Ishmael. 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. Now back in chapter 16, and again in chapter 21, God said he would bless Ishmael and make a great nation of him fulfilled. We got some here. So now we're here. They, they just appeared to all the packets. So they're available. So remember with Ishmael, God promised that he would bless him. And here we have a list of the family line that came through Ishmael. So although Ishmael is not the promised child, God still said, I'll bless you. And here he is experiencing the blessings. And this is all from Ishmael. Notice verse 19 now is the genealogy of Isaac, which remember, don't forget this, remember, as we move forward through Genesis and all the different, everything is pointing to Messiah. So there are other areas that like the genealogy of Ishmael that would then show God's keeping of his promise. 
But the real promise that we're looking to see fulfilled continually is of Messiah. So now we're hitting on that lineage through Isaac, Abraham's son, it says, verse 19, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife, daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Verse 21, Isaac pleaded, mark that word, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So Isaac's 40 years old when he's married. And notice, mark these words, husbands. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. And in this case, it was a very specific prayer that she might conceive a child. Rebekah waited 20 years for this prayer to be answered. It was a very difficult, difficult position to be in this culture and society for women to be barren. And I just like what Isaac does here. Men, you can bless your wives so much if you just pray for them and pray with them. I know it's on repeat, isn't it? There's a few things on repeat here in this church. Read your Bible and pray every day. It's on repeat. It's on repeat. You want to see spiritual growth in your life, then read your Bible and pray every day. You're experiencing difficulty in your marriage right now. We'll turn to the husband and say, are you reading the Bible with your wife? And are you praying with your wife? Sometimes the answer is flat out no. Sometimes it's she doesn't want to. Then the next question will be, are you reading your Bible for your wife? And are you praying for your wife? Well, you know, I thought it was only together. No, you need to plead with the Lord for your wife or vice versa. Wives, plead with the Lord for your husbands. The victory, as we learned with Moses recently, is in that place of prayer. It's not in the place of battle or argumentation or disgust. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that husbands, we're responsible to what? To wash our wives with what? The water of the word to pray the Bible over them and to pray the Bible to them and to pray the Bible into them, to make the language of the Bible the language that I speak to my wife with. Now, it doesn't mean I walk around saying, okay, Maria, John 3.16, stand there right now. Ed told me to pray like, God so loved the world. That means you. I, don't, I didn't say preach messages. But like, you know, you're frustrated. You have an argument with your wife. You're on the way to work. You're mad at your husband and you're on your way to work. Instead of rehearsing how a horrible person they are, you start praying for them. You go, you Lord, you know my heart. You know how much I love her. You know how much I love him. Man, I've, I can't do anything, God. You've got to change him. And the Lord says, you want me to change him? And you say, yes. You want me to change him now? Yes. Well, what about you? No, I'm not asking about me. Because what happens in prayer, you present yourself to God, you're open and vulnerable before God, and guess what? You find out it's really not about your spouse as much as it's about you. You're wrestling in your singleness right now. You, you take the principles of the scriptures, you begin to apply them to yourself. Lord, make me content in this season of my life. Help me to live a life that pleases you. You know what my desire is, and you know what direction I want to take my life, but that's where I'm at right now. I want to live pleasing you where I'm at right now. I mean, we can do that in any area, right? With where we work, if we're unemployed, where we live. God, just make me the man, the woman you want me to be where I am right now. And here we see a 
beautiful picture. He's begging God to bless his wife. Please, God. And what an awesome privilege we have to pray for our spouses, to pray for one another. So many times I'll be speaking, primarily this happens with more with men and with women and the ministry that God has called me to over the years. And I'm speaking with a husband that's complaining about his wife and complaining about this and she's this and she's that. And we're reminded the scriptures, the Bible tells us that wives are the glory of their husbands. And, you know, we don't use that kind of language anymore, but the best way to think of that is wives being the glory of their husbands is that they're a reflection of their husbands. And many times my counsel will be to pray for them. I mean, that's on repeat. Pray for your wife. Pray, read the Bible and pray. Talk about the Bible study when you leave. Talk about what God has been speaking to your heart. Don't let it just go away. Don't let it be lost. Make sure that the, your spiritual life is first, that together you're seeking first the kingdom of God. And, and then I, I also I give this counsel from time to time. It's like, well, be the kind of spouse you want your wife to be. Pray that into your life. Be the kind of spouse that you're desperate for her to be or for him to be. Live life that you're the only one you control anyway. And so you want your spouse to be strong in the Lord, you be strong in the Lord. You want your spouse to be encouraging, you be encouraging. But you know how it is. In an environment of discouragement, you know, you wake up and maybe there's some bickering or some arguing. What's your response? A little bit more bickering and a little bit more arguing. And can it be said of you, can we write a scripture of you that you in your difficult situation pleaded with the Lord for your spouse? Because God will bless that. Take your spouse, take your kids, take your situation to the throne room of God where you'll find grace and help in your time of need. And here he is praying for, for his wife and look at what God does. He gives, him a, gives her a double blessing. <laughs> it says in verse 22, it says that at the end of verse 21, Rebecca conceived, but the children struggled together within her. And you know what this speaks to me? It was a difficult pregnancy. It wasn't easy. She's got a war going on in her womb. And whatever that, you know, sticking the hand up under the rib cage and kicking and like it was a difficult pregnancy. It happens a lot of different ways today, but they're struggling together. And she says in verse 22, if all is well, why am this way? Why am I this way? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. So not only did she conceive, she had twins, a rough pregnancy, so hard and so challenging. She went from one challenge to the next. She was challenged by being barren, and then when she conceives, she's challenged by being pregnant, which tells me that the condition of your life Whatever the condition of your life doesn't mean you're not going to struggle and suffer. Like today you come and if I only had, I would be better. Perhaps in some ways you would, but in other ways it might be more difficult. And it drives you to the Lord, deeper relationship. And she says, if it's all well, why do I feel like this? And his answer was prophetic. It's a prophecy. God, two nations are in your womb. Not just two kids, but two nations. And one's going to be stronger than the other. And 
The older will serve the younger. Now, these verses, the truth here, we can't just pass over without acknowledging the tragedy of abortion in our country and in our world. God knew their personalities in the womb. It wasn't after they were born. Life begins at conception. The words are used here in Rebecca's life. And already God knew them and knew their future. He knew their personalities. He knew Esau, which is one of the kids. He knew his tendencies. He knew Jacob was a conniver already. God loves and cares and concerns with unborn children. In the womb, the baby is a whole precious person. They were, you know, we see already that these babies in the womb were fighting one another in their own developed personalities. And it's, it's important for you to understand that abortion is a sin. And if you're considering abortion tonight, please don't do it. Ask for help. I know you're scared. Perhaps I know maybe you're looking at your life and thinking, oh, I think my life is ruined because of this pregnancy and you're kind of caught up in, in the cultures, culture wars over you. But I'm not saying this in culture war right now. I'm not trying to win a fight with the world. I'm trying to plead with you for the baby in your womb. And I know it's scary. And, and it has altered your life. You can't undo that. Your pregnancy has already altered your life no matter what decision you make. And so I just ask you, knowing this goes out on the radio and really all over the country, just please consider, call the local crisis pregnancy center. Call, your, call the church. Let us help you get connected with someone. There are other options. Before you make any decisions, go get an ultrasound. There's an there's a organization that might be in your location called Save... Uh, save um, what is it? Save the Storks, right? Is that what it is? Save the Storks. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, good. Look them up and Google them. Even if they're not in your location, they can connect you with someone else that is in your location. But your life is already altered. And there's opportunity for you to give birth to life. You might end up raising that child or in some cases like my life, I was adopted. And another family took me into their lives and raised me as my birth mother decided to carry me to term. Haven't met her, don't know if I ever will, but I am appreciative that she made that choice. And who knows how it's all going to sort out in the king, you know, and maybe she's a believer and, and uh, she's like, man, I made something out of that punk you gave birth to, you know, and God is good. And so I'm not, again, I want to be careful. I'm not speaking in the culture wars. I'm not saying you're a bad person or like you're a horrible person that you're even thinking about it. When we were, when we were desperate, Marie and I, she was only 15. I was 17. And we were, I was so cheap and such a horrible person that I went through the yellow pages, if you guys remember that. If you don't, Google yellow pages. It'll show you what it is. Uh, it'll probably say, this is what Google used to be. And uh, we'd open it up and there was an ad there. And, you know, it was a free pregnancy test. I'm like, well, that's where I'm going if it's free but it was actually an abortion clinic. I didn't know any better. It's like free was free to me. And then once we got there, there was all kinds of other, other options. And fortunately, um, you know, the choice was made in our lives as well to keep our son and raise him until he was 26. So it was really good. 
The other thing about abortion without going on is if you have abortion in, in your background, I know it's hard to talk about. And I know you've been pushing it away and maybe stuffing it down. But God doesn't despise you because of that decision. And I know if you th rethink it and you've been thinking about it for a while that you may have made a different decision. And so you too ask for help so God can begin to heal that part of your life. That he doesn't just throw you away. He just doesn't see you as, um, you know what, what a horrific decision you made. I don't want anything to do with you. But rather, God is attracted to that weakness in your life. And they didn't tell you that in the clinic, did they? They didn't tell you it would jack with your head the rest of your life. They didn't tell you that it would be a, a cloud of guilt and shame the rest of your life. They didn't tell you about the dreams and the nightmares you would have. They didn't tell you. But God can heal you. And he can cleanse you. And he can help you. But don't mistake God's intention and what God has revealed to us. They're, those are babies in the womb, without question. And we have a wonderful opportunity to step into people's life, to help them and to serve them. Don't need to get involved in all the culture wars. Those are never ending. Jesus is victorious over all the culture wars. But the real power is when you connect with someone eye to eye. And you serve them and you love them in Jesus' name. Well, notice in verse 24, when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb and first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. And so they called his name Harry. That's what Esau means. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took a hold of Esau's heel. So his name was Jacob. And that word, his name means supplanter, or sometimes you'll hear, hear him referred to as heel catcher. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, so the boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents, which again tells me they had two different personalities. God uses all our personalities. And we're, here we have an example of men that not every man is like a manly, manly man or whatever. Like Esau was a hunter, but you know, Jacob was more, he, he was mild. He had a different personality, which just tells me, God, like your personality is just what God wants you to be. You don't have to be like anyone else. And we learn that even in our creative conference. There's just so many creatives that like, oh, it's so wonderful to have them. But you know, not everybody's creative and that's okay. Because God has made you as you are. So here they are in their personalities. Isaac, it says, loved Esau, verse 28, because he ate of his game. Uh, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so you can see they attached to their parents based on their personality. And Jacob cooked a stew. And Esau came in from the field. So now we have an episode. Some time has passed from birth, of course. They've grown up. That's why you're reading the Bible. You're like, what has happened? Years have taken place in that little gap. Uh, and so they cook, he cooked, uh, Jacob cooks a stew, Esau came in. He wasn't like a little baby in diapers coming in. Like, what are you doing? I went hunting, dad. Like, the, he's a full grown, they're, they're fully grown now. Uh, and Esau comes to Jacob, please feed me uh, that same red stew for I'm weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom, or another word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright as it is of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what profit shall this birthright be to me? 
And Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So these, year, these few verses represent a lot of years in these young men's lives. Esau's a hunter. Jacob is more close to his mom, probably around the house, learning how to cook. And verse 28 is a warning to all of us. It highlights how often, uh, how, how homes often are divided. And that is by parents showing favoritism. Families are divided. Kiddos are divided. Marriages are divided. And you have to be very, very careful of this. Esau was a man's man, an outdoorsman, a hunter, really a rough and rugged man. Jacob loved to cook, uh, hang around the house with his mom. He wasn't as rough as Esau, but the characteristics he, he had were just as valuable. One commentator put it this way, and I quote, they became the personification of two different ways. These two boys become the personification of two different ways of life, which would have been typical in the Palestine, that area of Palestine of this period. One would be of a hunter and a nomad, Esau, and the other would be of a shepherd and a semi-nomad, Jacob. That's how Esau is described, a skillful hunter, a man of the outdoors. Jacob, on the other hand, uh, is portrayed as a simple man or someone remaining in his tents, a man of a stable life in contrast to the rootless life of a nomad. And the family of Abraham involved a lot of child favoritism. It got carried down over and over again. Isaac, he loves rough and rugged Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. And parents don't do that. It just messes the kids up. Value them all for who they are. Don't compare them to one another. You know, the, why do you don't get grades like your, you know, you know all the things that, that can very easily compare your kids. Just love them as they are. Nurture them and how God made them. And be careful. These two nations in Rebekah's womb were Israel and Edom. The Edomites, which are present-day Jordan, um, you'll be able to see that when we go to Israel. Those of you coming with us, you'll be able to see beyond the Sea of Galilee, the hills of Jordan right behind there, Edom. And the Edomites, you know, they fought against Israel for years. As a matter of fact, when Moses takes the children of Israel through Edom and asks for safe passage, they attack them. So biblically and historically... The last known Edomite was Herod the Great. Now it's present-day Jordan. And then Esau sells his birthright in a momentary, a momentary lapse of his faith. What we would call today, he's in the flesh. He's hungry. He doesn't care about spiritual things. So he sells what is his for a bowl of stew. He sells what is his for a bowl of stew. He's not interested in spiritual things in the moment. And, you know, things can change in a moment, the whole course of your life can change in a moment for the positive, but also for the negative. And he's not interested in feeding or nurturing, nurturing his spirit or the role that God, the God-given role that he has been handed down to him through his birthright. And as a, the appetites of his flesh, and he sells what was his God-given right. And you know, the Bible speaks of two types of people, the spiritual and the natural or the spiritual, and you might hear the word carnal, the human. The natural man or the carnal man lives according to his own desires. And we, you use the phrase, you'll hear it, according to the appetites, the spiritual appetites, what he wants. He wants it, he gets it. 
the woman that lives according to the flesh, whatever they want, they, there's no restraint. They just do whatever they want, even though they know it's not from God. They feed themselves. That's why the title of our study is Don't Feed Your Flesh, because it's never satisfied. Never satisfied. And the spiritual man, although he lives in a natural body and has physical appetites, keeps his spiritual life as the primary focus. Esau was a carnal man. In this episode in his life, he sells his birthright for some food. The birthright was the privilege, was the God-given privilege of being the chief of the tribe, or what we would say today, the head of the family. It was given to the firstborn, and it's no small thing. In Isaac's family, it entitled the bearer to all of the blessings of God's, all of the blessings of God's promises. And you know, sometimes we as Christians, we sell all our rights. You've been given the birthright of being a son or a daughter of the king. All of the benefits and privileges and promises that are in Jesus Christ are yes and amen for you and for me. And yet we watch it over and over again. Believers selling their birthrights out for what? For nothing. I think of how many lives have been wrecked by pornography. What have you gotten in return for that? I mean, what have you gained I see birthrights destroyed, destroyed because of lying. What'd you get out of that? What, 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 was the, what was the bonus? Drugs and alcohol and people that said that they were your friends. What did you get out of that? Because you were hungry in the moment. And we need to learn that there's no negotiation. This has been a theme in our church the last few weeks. And all the studies have been woven together. There's no negotiation with the flesh. Like, like we learned with, with the Malachites that attacked in Exodus 17 recently. You, you got to wipe them out. There's no peace treaty with the flesh. There's no signing. I'll give you this much in my life. The Bible says in Romans that you're to reckon the old man dead. Make no provision for the flesh. And you can just pray through that. Walk in the spirit, as Galatians says, and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. And that's where we leave off in this chapter. And you can read ahead because we'll see in chapter 26 some sin in Isaac's life that looks a lot like his dad uh, because that's where he picked it up from. So Father, I pray as we learn in this Bible study, God, um, just thinking, God, we just thinking of the weight that comes when we talk about hard things like abortion or like forgiveness or reconciliation, or divorce, or polygamy. I mean, these are hard things. And we need help on how to communicate your heart in a world that so need, desperately needs you, Lord. And would you just forgive us or help us? I, I don't know quite what we need, God, so maybe we just plead with you that we don't want to get involved in the culture wars like we don't want to be the activists and the ones that are screaming and yelling that, that never really make any progress. God, we want to be down where you are. I mean, you, were, you stooped so low that you were riding in the dirt. We want to be down in, in the place of service and help and compassion and truth. But God, would you teach us how to deliver truth in a way that would be received by those that are close in our lives? Would you give us the language? Would you give us like insight on how to deliver it? And I just think of 
that woman tonight, maybe even feeling pressure from her boyfriend to get an abortion, God, that you would just give her the courage and protect her from any kind of abuse or any kind of fear she might be having right now. Just give her the confidence and the courage. Maybe she even feels all alone. I pray for that fear. Maybe it's all couched with confidence and courage and she's a strong woman or a strong teenager and and just kind of hiding that broken little girl under the, under the surface. And God, we, 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 don't, we, we don't know how you would use us, but we, we want to take note of how, how, God. I pray for the marriages that are broken. The, maybe the husband tonight, they go, you know, I haven't been pleading for my wife. Or the wife, it's, I haven't been pleading. Or, you know, the wife that her husband bailed on her. Just abandon her. The kids that are caught in the middle, Lord. Just so much brokenness in this chapter. And I'm reminded, Lord God, there's wholeness and healing in you. Even if we haven't fully realized it, we haven't fully felt it yet. That through the forgiveness of sins, the healing begins. And I just want to invite you today, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that. That's where the healing begins. It doesn't begin in a Bible study and it doesn't begin with being in a church and it doesn't begin with buying a Bible and it doesn't begin with having a Christian friend. It doesn't begin in all of the things that we think it does. The beginning of healing starts when you confess your sins and you receive the forgiveness that God has for you. And I want to invite you, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your savior and you'd like to do that, would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. I want to help you turn away, turn your life away from your sinful past. It was on a Wednesday night when I responded to this same invitation. I was just sharing my testimony yesterday with someone that never heard, didn't know anything about me. I was sharing it and I'm like, man, made me cry thinking of it. How good God is. How he's been pursuing you all this time. You don't even have to be in the room. You know, God sees you wherever you are. You don't have to stand either. It's like standing doesn't, doesn't do anything. But what it does is it marks a time. It's kind of like a, a, a picture where you can remember even mentally and verbally, visually. Like I remember the day I gave my life to Christ. I'm not going to live for myself anymore. It's about that guy that sold his life for a bowl of stew. I don't want to do that with my life. I want to live for something greater. So you can ask God to forgive you. You can say, God, forgive me of my sins. Because you have to ask. Like the Bible says, you have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you can tell God, would you forgive me, God, for my sins? I believe you sent Jesus to live for me and die for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul. God hears you when you pray. And you can come up and we'll explain things. We have a little packet to give you. Because you know, what do I do next? Well, there's a lot of life to be lived next. That's what. You need to bring your marriage to the altar. Come up and pray with someone. You need to bring your singleness. You need to bring your dad, your mom to the altar. Let us pray for you and stand with you and believe God. You don't believe God right now? Let us that have some faith that we're not going through as stuff as bad as you are, let us 
have some faith with you and believe for you. Or you can leave encouraged because we all go through seasons like that. And let the Lord use you mightily in these last days, the days in which we live, so that no matter what our age is, you know, we live to a good old age. So good. He's so faithful to us. He loves you so much. A guy like me can't even describe how much God loves you. You just got to feel it and experience it. And then you'll know it and it'll change you forever. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.